I've been a wild rover for many's the year And I've spent all me money on whiskey and beer But now I'm returning with gold in great store And I never will play the wild rover no more And it's back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett. And I'm Max Frost. Today we interviewed Michael Brendan Doherty. He's one of my favorite journalists. He's a senior writer at National Review, formerly of The Week magazine. And he's out with a new book called My Father Left Me Ireland, An American Son's Search for Home. We had a really good wider ancient conversation with him where we talked about everything from his experience growing up in America with his father who still lived in Ireland. And we tied that to the importance of the family and eventually the nation. We hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. And without further ado, here's Michael. Michael, thank you for joining us on Banter today. Great to be here. So the book is on the surface a memoir of sorts about your life growing up in America with your single mother while your father lived in Ireland. But it's a lot. It's about a lot more than that. And we want to get to all the themes about nationalism and belonging later. But just to start to give the listeners a general idea of the setting, can you just give us a brief outline of what your childhood was like, what your relationship to your father in Ireland was like growing up? Sure. So I grew up, I was born in and raised partly in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And then in my teen years, we moved to Brewster, New York, which is in Putnam County, New York. Mm -hmm. And um, I was raised by a single mother who was living with her parents. And um, my father was not around from the the beginning. I mean, he uh, he didn't even see me until I think I was nine months old. My mother and, and he had met in London as she was traveling around Europe. Uh, they had a romance kind of over the summer. He came to America and stayed with her for a bit. I was the result. And yeah, I mean, his brother, my uncle, uh, whose name is Faley, is the first person of that family to see me. And my, um, you know, I would see my father, unlike American families that are marked by divorce or separation or, or unmarriedness, um, I didn't have that kind of double life of two Christmases and two Easter's. It was really, I saw my father every couple of years, sometimes for a few days, sometimes for maybe two weeks, sometimes for a few hours. You talk all about Ireland and yeah. the whole book is about Ireland. How did you get to the point, like, why is it that Ireland became such a thing for you? If you were born and raised in America, you were an American, how right. is it that this came to be? Well, I, and I don't want, you know, there's some confusion with this book coming out that I'm like, a, I've seen comments like that I'm a disloyal American in some way. a loyalty. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> but my mother was Irish American. Um, I would say that in her parents, in the book, I say that the Irish hyphen was kind of faded for her generation, but because of my mother's unique, you know, circumstance of, of mothering a child with an Irish father whom she was madly in love with, she got really involved in this kind of what I call the diaspora nationalist scene in New York and Boston and beyond. And a lot of that was heavily involved in the 1980s in, you know, 
thinking about the politics of Northern Ireland mm-hmm. and uh, the Troubles. Uh, but she would also take me to Irish cultural festivals in New Jersey where there was all the stuff that goes along with Irish nationalism, which is traditional music, Irish language, arts, storytelling, poetry, all of that. And that was just injected into my life, almost into my nursery. And um, we would go away on retreat weekends, even in New York, to learn the Irish language or to try to learn it. Um, And so I grew up with this sense of that there's another place for me. There's this other country that is filled with, you know, um, romance and, you know, almost legendary figures, you know, and I, I, I can remember very clearly, like we would go on little vacations to the Jersey shore and every year, every day I would like squint out over the ocean and just like point, uh, I was probably pointing at, you know, Morocco. Or yeah, or Nigeria. Or I, I don't know. Why, I don't know how the latitude works. But yeah. Yeah, I was probably pointing, you know, into the mouth of the Mediterranean. But I would say, like, I can see it. I can see Ireland just over the shore. Um, and so Ireland became this kind of repository for my imagination. And you know, we would visit occasionally too. So I had this this sense of I could be going there at any any time. Maybe we would move there someday. So it just kind of filled the home in a way that was kind of abnormal i think for most kids like most of my classmates might have been italian american but their 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 closest connection to italy was like the pizza shop around the corner yeah i remember just being surprised when i read this because even in america now and and we're a younger generation than you so many people say that they're irish american but usually that just manifests as uh, rooting for notre dame football right? yeah yeah, yeah and that's yeah. about as deep as you get and your mother wasn't even irish herself really or yeah i mean she was irish irish american irish American-American and then you know this kind of love affair in her life and having a son kind of revived this interest in Ireland yeah. in, an, in an intense way. And she wore, you know, I can remember she wore a bracelet for political prisoners in Northern Ireland. And, um, you know, and in the book, I talk about the experience of going through her letters to my father and they were filled with observations about the political scene in Ireland or like cursing Margaret Thatcher and things like that. That was just part of my childhood. Now my childhood had all sorts of other things yeah. uh, in it too. So I wasn't kind of raised in like a, a hot house where I thought I was in Ireland, but it was, it was important to me. And um, I found out, Later in life, you know, as I was having children, kind of the same process was happening to me as I felt like this need to connect with uh, those roots. Yeah. Yeah, we, we haven't seen it yet, but we do have a gigantic Reagan and Thatcher portrait up, in, <laughs> up on the roof. So this is a, this is a pro-Thatcher environment. So uh. I mean, I, I won't tell you what's in the boot of the car outside. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, yeah, I, I did want to ask, too, do you think you still would have – so obviously you have an Irish father. Do you think without your mother taking you to these Irish festivals in New Jersey and singing to the Irish lullabies, do you think you still would have had this sense of wanting to recover these Irish roots later in life? Uh, I don't think so, no. Or, or you know, it would be – it would feel different. Um, just because I think in your childhood, this can be so formative, right? I mean, I think um, maybe kids who grew up in uh, as, you know, military brats in the United States, right? They have these memories of parades, parties, uh, anthems, and things like that, that kind of become the warp and woof of their memory and this, and this depository of their loves and their ambitions and their desires. So, and while I, f- I feel the same thing, I mean, I 
I tried to join the U.S. military right out of high school. That's a, a different story for another book, maybe. <laughs> um, maybe a more comic book um, <laughs> than this one. Uh, you know, I had this this connection to Ireland and its history. And then I, I found it kind of reviving itself as I had my own children. Yeah. So as much as the book is also a story about Ireland, it's also a memoir, you know, growing up without a father. Yeah. Um, so how do you how do you tie that in? You know, is it like what is the relationship between Ireland and an yeah. absent father? Well, so, I mean, the book is kind of a meditation on this idea of broken homes and then broken homelands or or the relationship between a home and the homeland it sits within. And the you know, the kind of mess, if there's a message in the book, and I don't want it to sound didactic, but a nation and a home are similar in, in many ways in, in that they are institutions, on, on if you want to describe it in this kind of mechanical way. But they are this, as I said, really like a repository of your loves and ambitions. They form you in a certain way. And the idea of the book was that I grew up in this broken home without a father and in some ways, that almost puts you automatically into uh, um, a situation of, of alienation or or disillusion with the world, right? This is someone who, in most cases, most or in normal cases, a father is called to um, protect and provide for his children. And so you have this kind of primal, primordial relationship where faith has been broken and it can you know in a way affect your view of authority altogether and what you owe authority figures yourself and what you owe the authority of your national tradition or your or your nation itself um and so you know i connect in a way this idea of you know being disinherited of my father's affections and love at a young age that that sense of it with the larger cultural move away from the nation and the nation state as a repository of love where in fact we we turn um, the nation state into just an administrative unit unit and in some ways we do the same thing with fatherhood we say oh fatherhood is just about passing on advantages to children so you know if a father doesn't do that himself maybe some other person or some other um, institution in life can just do what fathers do, which is, you know, teach you to whatever, grow up and earn money and achieve status, et cetera. Yeah. And so, you know, the book is trying to get at the the spiritual core of fatherhood and the nation and, and show how they're connected in this in this way that can't be reduced down to just technocratic jargon and material advantage or status. You know, that these are realities that you engage with not just as uh like a unit uh, to be worked on, but as a, a human with a heart, a soul, a mind, and passions. Yeah, th- this reminds me, there's a memorable part in this story, kind of takes some jabs at the social science abstracts. And there's a quote that I wrote down here where you said that our walks now, our men of letters now, are unable to develop a political or moral thought without searching out a social science abstract from which to loot it. Is this all, so that this is all connected where we don't have this sort of more romantic view of the bonds between nationalism and fatherhood and now everything is just I, I, what do you mean by that i guess i don't mean to downgrade all policy thinking right we are but, in a think tank but what i mean but what i mean is that for most people and particularly in a democratic age you you engage with 
your engagement with the nation is something you do as a citizen and potentially as a soldier someday. And your commitment to it isn't just like, you know, sometimes we talk about it just like a, as a contract of, okay, the U.S. provides security um, as a, as, and we, we even use this kind of language, like it provides a good security and you in turn might provide your life, which you might, you know, you might be called to die for this thing, which is just a goods provider. Um, and goods are defined in this, in this kind of flattened way of hedonic utility or utilitarian measures. Uh, when in fact the nation provides identity, belonging, um, you know, a language, a way of understanding the world and engaging the world. So, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to push back against this tendency where, uh, you know, in the world of, um, you know, what I call the men of letters, um, women of letters, uh, this applies just as much. Uh, I wanted to push back against this tendency where the only thing we do is stack up social science research and engage that way because I think that that forbids one. I think that is an offense to democracy, where citizens should be able to engage politically without becoming issue experts first. You know, and two, there's just a whole world of letters and thinking beyond that: history, literature, poetry, song, theater. These are all domains in which you can do something that is a credit to your nation or a service to your nation, even if even if that's not the primary thing it is. Yeah. Um, right. Not every poem that, um, not every book that Mark Twain wrote, right, was like him thinking, "I'm doing this to um, make America great again." Right. He, he's writing this as a literary achievement, but it is also an American achievement, and the same thing is true in Ireland with W. B. Yeats. And I worry about a world in which public activity is defined as just fiddling with the knobs of policy and then private activity is is completely cut off from any sense of duty to the nation, any sense of belonging to it. Well, I think it seems like a lot of the stuff you just mentioned now, I mean, I think especially on the left, you know, there's a lot of people who say like this idea of like the nationhood and being proud of your nation is almost synonymous with like exclusivity. Yeah. Talk about language and then, you know, people would say, well, you can't be, how, if you're American, what language do we have? You know, it's a country of migrants and this and that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that goes for pretty much any, you know, religion, creed, whatever. So it seems like these kind of, these ideas are kind of going by the wayside in the U.S. Yeah. Um, at least, you know, increasingly now. Do you see the same, do you see it that way? And also in Ireland, do you see something similar? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's... Um I, I mean, I think we've referred to this flattened view of, of nations in the world as like, this is just an administrative arena for, for achieving metrics of um, delivering GDP, delivering, you know, healthcare outcomes or something like that. And there's been this kind of, I, you know, you we were raised, at least I think all of us about the same age, in this kind of post-Cold War orthodoxy of, well, the point of politics is to achieve... Um, the ever freer movement of goods, people, and services across borders. In fact, ideally, we'd like to see, um, you know, nations. In, in many ways, it's almost like a Marxist vision of the world, right? Like we're going to see the state and these national loyalties dissolve mm-hmm. through economic activity. That's just going to reduce all of that to, um, you know, private pursuits or or abolish it altogether. Um, I don't think that. 
actually history will end um, in that way, whether it's a, a Marxist vision or a liberal democratic vision. Um, people still um, need their nations and they will turn to them again in, in a period of crisis. They'll turn to this idea of a national story and the national traditions that can be recovered for whatever challenge you might meet next. So, you know, for instance, right, like the United States, we may feel like maybe less and less so, but in the 90s, you felt like this uh, hegemonic moment would last forever. Peace, prosperity would just overflow the world. You know, there'd be skirmishes along the edges, but the direction of history was clear. But, you know, if if someday China is challenging the independence of the United States as a political unit, as a, as a sovereign nation, immediately the, the relevance of John Adams, of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson will become much more urgent to not just um, intellectuals and policy thinkers, but to the common citizen. Just to play devil's, I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that point of view, but just to play devil's advocate a little bit, you say that- sure national sentiment is kind of, it, it'll make itself known again at some point. And yet you also write, I mean, it seems like the impression I get from your book is that in Ireland, national sentiment is almost seen as an embarrassment. You talk about yeah. your father being, having these different political beliefs than you. The most shocking thing to me is you mentioned a play that kind of mocks Patrick Pierce, who I would have thought would be kind of the, the hero that yeah. he led the Easter Rising in 1916. And yet there's some quote there where he says that a nation needs bloodshed essentially. And, and they use that quote to kind of Embarrass. Yeah, embarrass him. And, and then, but when you write about it, you, you say that he's still here to you, but Ireland itself seems to not really want to celebrate his memory anymore. Right. I mean, in many ways, right, the, the, one of the things in this, in this book, My Father Left Me Ireland, is um, as my children are coming into my life, just as my mother did, I start reengaging with this tradition. And what's so fascinating about it to me is that um, I kind of immediately dove into the figures surrounding Ireland's 1916 Easter Rebellion. And this was um, kind of the the hinge moment in modern Irish history. And what I found was, uh, you know, at the same time I'm having children, Ireland is kind of commemorating these events and, and remembering them in 2016 and beyond. And what I found was there was... Ireland was alienated from these figures in many ways because, in a sense, the the hard drive for national independence and, and complete sovereignty, that mission has been abandoned as Ireland is, actually fancies itself as, like, the most obedient member of the European <laughs> Union in many ways. You know, there were dreams of a more socialist Ireland from James Connolly. Those have been abandoned. Obviously, it's now like Ireland's this capitalist miracle, the yeah. Celtic Tiger tax haven uh, view. Uh, but what I found even more fundamentally was that you'd find articles in the New York Times at this time uh, of commemoration saying, oh, well, this was a, a, a rebellion launched in the name of the dead generations, right? In the, the, the proclamation that was made at the beginning of the Easter Rebellion was in the name of God and of the dead generations. And the New York Times would run a piece saying, you know, it was a rebellion launched in the name of the dead generations, unquote, who could not demure, right? And basically saying like this idea of doing something in honor of people that went previously and that died before, 
um, you know, the New York Times view is that this is kind of an arrogance, uh, that this is kind of you puppeting the past um, to serve your own needs. And fundamentally, I reject that view of history. And, the, and this, this book is an attempt to kind of vindicate uh, the way the, the people of the rising thought about history and their place in it, which is that, um, you know, conservatives were used to in America – Probably listeners of this podcast have probably heard of Edmund Burke, the yeah. Irish, the, the Anglo-Irish statesman born in Dublin, who talked about society as a contract, a, a compact between the living, the dead and the unborn. And what I do in the book in, in some ways is I, I take that observation and I run it through Patrick Pierce, this Irish revolutionary, Gaelic Irish revolutionary who, in a sense, intensifies it. And what he has this memorable essay called Ghosts, in which he talks about how um, the ghosts of a nation ask big things, um, and the only way to appease them is to do them. And I try to vindicate the view that, in fact, Pierce's view, that Ireland had this tradition of rebellion aimed at achieving independence from foreign rule based in England. And Pierce is trying to recapture that tradition in his own life and um, and honor it. And the very fact that Ireland had had this kind of existing, pre-existing fund of romantic heroes, songs, patriotic ballads, um, and histories allowed people to recognize the... 1916 rebels for what they were, which was the heroes and deliverers of this nation. Um, and and so I wanted to, in a sense, intensify Burke with Pierce and and recover what I call the this ecology that exists between living, unborn, and dead. That what what a nation is really is this is this spiritual thing, and it's an ecology where the ghosts of the past. Uh, reproach the living on behalf of the unborn. So when you are, when you invest in a posterity, when you invest in your children or the children of the nation, the the voices of the past, the voices, the conscience of your nation is kind of returned to you, even if you um, somehow, for whatever reason, uh, were absent from that that dialogue between living undead and born. And and that's what this book really is, right? This is an it begins with this personal story of my own child kind of reviving these sentiments in me just the way that I did when um, for my mother. Um, kind of on, on a different note, related but different note. Yeah. Um, in the practical, you know, it's all nice to have the feeling of the nation and this yeah. and that. In the practical note, what do you see as whether it's in the U.S. or in Ireland or a different country, how do you see people changing? What are going to be the differences from a depressed nationalism, as in, like, where are people turning? Well, I think what is, I mean, what I contrast this with is the, um, you know, my book is in some ways like a little bit of a response to Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History and the Last Man. And what I say is that the kind of culture I was raised in in America, the education I was given, the, the kind of peers that I'm supposed to have in even in this world, right, of talking about policy, is that... Um, we were, in a sense, raised to believe that like all of this stuff about the nation is actually kind of oppressive and it um, it constrains the autonomous self, right? It constrains your freedom, really, right? That 
And many people in Ireland's, um, you know, political class believe the same thing, right? Like the book even begins with kind of a reflection on uh, an Irish figure, John Bruton, former Taoiseach, who said that um, the past exercises a tyrannical hold on the on the present and urging us on to to do the impossible. Now he had reasons for stating stating that rooted in the troubles that I can understand, but as a as a description, I think it fits with the sentiment of the times where he was Taoiseach in Ireland in the 1990s, and you had this this intense desire to be liberated from all personal constraint. And what I try to show is that this myth of liberation that the in a sense the last man that Fukuyama is describing through Nietzsche is not just shallow he's not just obsessed with health and safety he's not just um, impaired in his moral reasoning like that's something Fukuyama talks about is that in a, a, a society a liberal democracy um, as liberal democracy takes hold, it, it becomes impossible to make distinctions between good and evil because you're so obsessed with equality that you have to make them almost equal. Only health and safety becomes uncontroversial. So this last man isn't just shallow, uh, politically kind of inert, um, morally handicapped. In a sense, what I'm implying is he's also barren. He has no... His attempt to be the liberated self leaves him unable to have children or if he has children, unable to care for them correctly and more likely to abandon them. And thus I'm connecting this this idea of nation and family, of familism and nationalism. Um, So in, in a sense, like... I don't I, like I said the book is not a didactic it's meant to be suggestive it's meant to be a story it's meant to be the, there isn't like some final chapter where I say like okay and this is the 10 point plan for getting back to things which is yeah. how most political books are yeah. but the the book is an attempt to suggest that one alternative is this myth of liberation but this myth of liberation leaves us you know, as I say, marooned at the end of history, alone, you know, without either our uh, forefathers to provide, console, and guide us, and without our children to inspire us to act in, in a way that history demands we actually act. I can vouch the book is not didactic. It's actually a very, very nice story, very good. Um, but as someone, <laughs> but as, I mean, as so I actually, I, just by coincidence, I, I finally got around to reading Fukuyama's book a few months ago because mm-hmm. I've seen the end of history invoked and kind of attached from every different angle for so long. Yeah. It's and, actually a brilliant book, and it's it's actually seriously disquieting, yeah. and it's much misrepresented. I actually think everyone should read it. Well, I was going—yeah, when I read it, I I mean, I've just, I'm just used to seeing it written, like, in columns all the time saying, like, haha, like— LOL, Fukuyama was so wrong. Look, there's still nationalism out in the world. No, 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 no. Fukuyama is actually, I mean, my view is that Fukuyama's, this book is genius and it's unsettling in a serious way. And um, precisely because no one talks about the, people talk about the, the end of history and the last man, like it's this post-Cold War manifesto for U.S. domination of the world. But yeah. actually it's it's much more unsettling than that. Yeah. So is there, is there probably, you, you mentioned him. The end of history. I don't think you mentioned it by name, but you talked about the end of history. So it's clear to people that know who your target is, I guess. Yeah. Is your problem with him more that it's not that he's wrong? He's just, it's just unsettling how right he was and that, and that you don't like that because it, it it seems like he was, at least in Ireland. If Ireland now, you talked about in the first letter how you're trying to recover Irish nationalism at the same moment they're all trying to throw it away. Yeah. Is it more unsettling to you that he seems like he's right and nationalism is just waning? 
it is waning in certain places. However, I don't know. I I don't want to pronounce really on the uh, the idea that liberal democracy. You know, the idea in the kind of the first half of the book that liberal democracy is sort of the in some ways he suggests the final yeah. d- d- political endpoint. It's almost beyond my pay grade to 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 go with that thesis. But I think the second half of the book where he describes he gets into Nietzsche's idea of the last men um, and what the, what humanity will be like underneath a system like this, or in, in which traditional politics is sort of uh, a thing of the of the past. I think, in a sense, I was educated to be one of those last men. Uh, in many ways, I was I was educated to reject this myth of nationality as irrational. I was educated to. Um, view material things, health and safety, material acquisition as the kind of the only real goods in the world. If the good has any, if the world has anything real in it, um, that's not just like an invention of of my own mind or of society acting through me. And so, yeah, I I am, you know, suggesting in a way. Um, Andrew Sullivan got this a little bit in in his review of the book, but. You know, what Pierce was to uh, his generation, right? He was rejecting the compromises of home rule and rejecting the compromises that Irish nationalists had made the generation before. In some ways, this book is a message to the previous generation that I'm rejecting the kind of political dogmas and and really the, the more so the cultural and anthropological outlook that accompanied them in the 1990s. One last question here. You know, so it's not a policy book. Right. Um, but this is a policy podcast. Yeah, so it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. So you have to ask, you know, what needs to change in America or Ireland or anywhere else for that matter to get people to start taking the nation seriously again? Well, it, this isn't a policy. But there are two things I kind of talk about. And, you know, if you – so if you're a conservative and you want to boil this – like if you took this book and you – you boiled it in a lab down to its fundamental elements. There's a, there is like a traditional conservative book here and it's about in some ways it's about the, the culture of repudiation in the academy and in, in schools. Um, and it's about fertility, uh, in the West. You know, I, the only social science statistic I even hint at in the book is this idea of like the United States and Ireland both have plunging fertility rates and the the suggestion the book makes, you know, that readers could pick up on at the end if they're attuned to it, in a sense is that it's a social question. It's it's pre-political in many ways, which is that if you make an investment in posterity, if you if you look at um, politics through the eyes of what do we want to pass down to our children, and the only way you'll probably do that is if you start having them. It's then that it's that act that begins opening you up to um, the great inheritance that you have at hand because because of what your ancestors have done for you with their labor, with their lives, with and in many cases with their deaths, right? With what they sacrificed for you. So that so in a sense, like my what I'm trying to vindicate here, right, is is Cicero's idea of piety, right? Like, I'm trying to render it for the modern reader. And through this, 
and doing it through this nation that is in many ways like seems small and peripheral, right? It's the only nation on earth that has a smaller population now than it did in 1800, right? It's, it's in some ways, it, it is the size of a home and it reminds people of a home in, in many ways. So that's, that is the, the kind of message of the book is that we won't recover the conscience of our nation until we begin producing a, a posterity for this nation. And if you want to know more about that, we recorded a podcast with Lyman Stone about two weeks ago <laughs> on uh, population and fertility rates. So that could be the unofficial sequel uh, of this. Till then, Michael, thank you so much for coming oh, on Banter. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. As always, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you did, please go and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast. I don't know if you can comment on Spotify or review. Well... If you can, do it. I don't know if we're on Spotify, actually. I think someone said we are. In the process. Okay. (laughs) So don't go to Spotify. (laughs) Go to iTunes. Go to Stitcher. um, Wherever you may. We got a very nice and constructive comment from Don G, who says, Dandy podcast. Very informative. There is some conflation of health insurance with health care. Those things are different. In any discussion about insurance, it is important to first establish the purpose of the insurance. Don G, I heartily agree with you on that. And my apologies for this conflation. And next time we have Jim Capretta down here, we'll press him on that one. Don't worry. Yes. But we think you're dandy too, Donji. And uh, <laughs> we want more comments. We'll, uh, that, you know, you all make our day. And we'll be back next week with a surprise guest, a surprise even to us right now. And we'll see you then. <laughs>